What's up, everybody? This is Don, the host of the Real Spill Podcast. I hope you guys enjoy episode number eight. In NCAA basketball this weekend, and we had South Carolina defeated Tennessee in the SEC Championship 74-58. Behind an impressive performance, as always, from Aaliyah Boston, who had 18 points and 7 rebounds in 34 minutes. Zaya Cook also added 24 points and 5 rebounds in 33 minutes as they defeated the Lady Vols 74-58. to In the Big Ten, Iowa defeated Ohio State 105-72, to a really impressive performance, as always, from Caitlin Clark, who ended the game with 30 points, 10 rebounds, and 17 assists. Another really impressive performance by her as always she's very elite one of the best players i've ever seen in college basketball male or female she'll be one of the top scorers when she leaves right next to kelsey plum who went to washington in the big east the women's basketball team from the university of yukon dominated as usual they finished their first game beating georgetown 69 to 39 in their second game they beat marquette 81 to 52 and then finally in the final game they beat villanova who was number two in the tournament 67 to 56 controlling the game from the start to finish Aliyah edwards who i've spoke about in previous episodes averaged 19.3 points and 13.3 rebounds per game in the big east tournament she was named player of the tournament as she should be it was pretty much a runaway from her from the very beginning, as I've kind of talked about in previous episodes as well. She's extremely efficient, extremely dominant. Um, efficiency is just the key with her. Efficiency is the key with everybody on UConn, really. They don't take a lot of bad shots. Edwards was named a semifinalist for the 2023 Spitz Women's College Player of the Year Award. Very well deserving. She's kind of stepped up this year as a junior for Paige Beckers and Ozzie Fudd, who've been out for most of the year on and off um, with injuries. Ozzie's played this year. Paige hasn't. She tore an ACL, I believe, in training camp this year. I did submit a ballot for the starting five fan vote this year. At point guard, I have Nika Mull from UConn, Zaya Cook at shooting guard from South Carolina, Haley Jones, one of the most consistent players in all of college basketball for the last four years at Stanford, Anissa Morrow from DePaul, who's just a scoring machine, and then finally Aaliyah Boston from South Carolina at center, who we spoke about previously. She's one of the most dominant players in all of college basketball. Her numbers are definitely down this year, but she'll still probably end up winning most of these awards. She was getting double and triple teamed all season and still remained pretty consistent, and I believe she did still average a double-double, and she's going to show up, obviously, and they're not going to be able to double and triple as much in the NCAA tournament so she'll see a lot of one-on-one action and a lot more points and production out of her in the tournament. In men's college basketball this week, a few coaching decisions were made. Jim Beheim at Syracuse is officially out as Syracuse head coach after 47 seasons. He went 1,015 and 441 as the head coach of Syracuse, an absolute legend. He's already a Hall of Famer. After they lost in the ACC tournament this week, he did hint at retirement but said it would ultimately be the team and university's decision. So about three hours later, the decision did come down, so he's officially out as Syracuse head coach. At the University of Georgetown, Patrick Ewing, one of the greatest basketball players in college basketball history as well as NBA history, is officially out as head coach after just six seasons at his alma mater. He went 75-109 and 109 in those seven seasons. They were just really never able to get on the same track and never really able to figure it out at Georgetown, unfortunately. It definitely was a feel-good story. Um, it definitely made sense when they did make the hiring at the time. But again, they've just never been able to figure it out. I don't think he's ever really had a winning record. They've broken all kinds of negative losing records since his tenure in these seven seasons. Really sad to see. Definitely wish that would have worked out and maybe him win a national championship at his alma mater. He, but he'll still be around. He'll still be at games. Um, he probably still lives there, to be completely honest with you, and will continue to live there. But he is out of head coach after seven years. So those are two really big openings in college basketball. It's very. It's going to be very interesting to see who will end up filling those positions. Those kind of positions, obviously Jim Hayheim being there for 47 seasons, and then Patrick Ewing being there for seven seasons after retirement of a previous coach. 
doesn't actually happen very often. So there'll be some pretty big names, I'm sure, that will fill these spots. Um, not just anybody off the streets and not just a grad assistant coach. You don't really just hire anybody at these kind of programs with all the history and championships and winnings that they have. So it'll be very interesting in the offseason to see what they do with these positions. And going forward, hopefully they'll have some success at Syracuse and Georgetown. University of Texas head coach Steve Sarkeesian was asked about the quarterback battle this upcoming season. He said, I'm not worried about who's going to be on the cover of what magazine this week. Quinn has an entire year head start, but I don't want to hold Arch back. I want to see how far he can take this thing and see what it can look like. So it definitely sounds like they're leaning towards eventually starting Arch at some point this season, if not definitely next season. So we might see another transfer out of Quinn Evers, which is very interesting as he was the number one overall recruit two years ago. He was at Ohio State for one year, essentially one semester, and decided to transfer out. He wasn't going to win the starting quarterback position over CJ Stroud. It just wasn't going to happen, which kind of tells you about the kind of player he is and also where he was at at that time he did have a really good first year though at texas arch looks really good he will eventually be probably pretty elite but i don't think he is better than quinn at this exact moment i think he should take at least half the season if not this entire year for quinn's sake but either way one of these kids is going to end up back in the transfer portal at some point and going to a different school because quinn will definitely need a third year in my personal opinion unless he just kills it this year and then arch will have his full four years of eligibility including this year if he does not eventually redshirt so 247 sports released their best coaches in college football list they named nine coaches that they felt to be the best nine coaches in all of college football we'll start off with number nine luke fickle that's fair Good coach, had some time at Ohio State, had some time at Cincinnati, very successful generally everywhere he's gone. Eventually, he probably will be someone that ends up in the NFL or at one of these major universities. Not that Wisconsin isn't a major university, but one of the like top five, six schools in all of the country consistently yearly. He probably will end up in one of those jobs at some point. Number eight, Kyle Whittingham, uh, same thing. Really successful last few years at Utah. Some 11-2 seasons, some 11-3 seasons. 11 wins is impressive no matter how you do it. Um, did end up defeating USC and kept them out of the college football playoffs, so I do appreciate them for that, certainly. Number seven was USC head coach Lincoln Riley. Very fair, really good coach, really good recruiter. I don't think he's necessarily a winner. I think he's more of a recruiter than a winner. Did The product on the field doesn't necessarily represent what he gets in recruitment and all the time, in my personal opinion. Number six is Ryan Day, my head coach of the Ohio State University. When we talk about the names that are in front of him, one specifically being number five, which is Brian Kelly at LSU. I don't see how Brian Kelly's resume is really too much more impressive than Ryan Day's. Uh, we've made it to the college football playoff at least three out of four years that Ryan Day has been the coach. He obviously did have the greatest year, his first year at LSU, but some recruitment and some time. We'll see how that pans out. Dabo Sweeney, very fair. He's been pretty consistent over the last few years. They have struggled a little bit at Clemson. They're still getting top recruits. They're still top 10, 15 recruitment classes every year. So I think they will rebound and be a lot better this year. Number three, I have a hell of an issue with, which is Jim Harbaugh. He's quite literally never done anything from the University of Michigan. He's beat us the last two years, being Ohio State, of course, and I respect that. I hate that. It definitely will not happen again in 2023 this year. Um, some of those games have been absolute flute games, but he's gotten to the college football playoff, and every time he gets there, he does the same thing as Brian Kelly. They usually get smacked. They got beat by 2CU this year, which was a hell of an upset. A lot of people weren't expecting that. I'm pretty upset that that happened because I wanted Ohio State to rematch them from the last game of this college football year in the championship, which would have been probably the highest-rated college football playoff championship game ever if it was Michigan and Ohio State. 
That would be insane. Everybody would have been interested in that. I think he's way too high, though, on this list. They were thinking about firing this man before this season, so plus, please keep that in mind. But hype and recency bias has got him at number three. Number two is Nick Saban, which is just stupid. Um, it's blasphemous, as Stephen A. Smith would say. It makes absolutely no sense. Uh, he's the best college football coach in college football until he retires. That just is what it is. Uh, Kirby Smart is number one on this list. I respect Kirby Smart. Kirby Smart is absolutely amazing. He might end up being the GOAT at some point, but to put him above Nick Saban in 2023-2022, based on the 2022 season, it makes absolutely no sense. That's absolutely recency bias. If they win two or three more championships in a row, I still would put Nick Saban up here because he's not dominating Nick Saban's teams. They're not blowing them out. They honestly don't even get a chance to play each other most of the time during the season, which I have a problem with. Nick Saban kind of spoke about that recently as well with the kind of set rivalry games that are going to be every year now in the SEC. Georgia should be on their schedule. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care about the divisional thing. They should have to play Georgia during the regular season. If Ohio State has to play Michigan during the regular season, it's only fair. It gives them a bit of a cakewalk, in my personal opinion, to the college football playoff and through the conference championship games if they don't have to pay each other before that game. So, again, number two is Nick Saban, and number one they have on their list is Kirby Smart, which I definitely don't agree with, is Nick Saban is still, until he retires, the best coach of all time, and still the best college football coach currently. Some other news in college football this week, the University of Clemson has unveiled the Clemson Athletic Branding Institute, or the CAB as they call it. It's the first dedicated facility for the student-athlete branding and NIL education. So they're pushing this as an educational platform and space for these student athletes when it comes to this NIL money. It's very interesting. Uh, The building is a 12,000 square feet building, two stories, and attached to the west end of the school's Poe indoor facility. So it's just right off from the football facility, essentially. I don't take a lot from this. I think it is very interesting. I think they're just the first of many that will end up doing this. I see Alabama doing it. I see Texas doing it. I see Ohio State. I see Georgia, Florida. The teams with the biggest pockets, they're going to end up doing very similar things following suit to what the University of Clemson has done this week by opening up the very first NIL facility for quote-unquote education of NIL branding. It was a really busy week this week in the NBA. It started with Sunday's primetime game between the Phoenix Suns and the Dallas Mavericks, which ended with the Phoenix Suns defeating the Dallas Mavericks 130-126. to An amazing high-scoring game all the way around. Kevin Durant finished with 37 points and 7 rebounds. Devin Booker finished with 36 points, 10 assists, and 5 rebounds. Chris Paul had 11 points, 7 rebounds, and 6 assists. DeAndre Ayton had 9 points and 16 rebounds. For the Mavericks, Kyrie finished with 30 points, 7 rebounds, and 4 assists. Luka Doncic had 34 points, 4 rebounds, 4 assists, I'm sorry, and 9 rebounds. Tim Hardaway Jr. came up big as well with 21 points. He really kept them in this game, as well as Christian Wood, who had 17. Um, throughout some stretches where Luka and Kyrie weren't necessarily hitting shots and keeping up with the Suns. Someone that's always given us laughs in the NBA, Grant Williams, had a pretty funny situation this week when he missed two go-ahead winning free throws. Um, against the Cleveland Cavaliers, Donovan Mitchell came up to him and tried to bother him a little bit before the free throws, saying, you definitely don't want to miss these. He replied, "Was I'm going to make them both twice. Um, just a hell of a meme, a hell of a moment at this point. He did go ahead and miss free, both free throws. They ended up going to overtime, in which they lost the game. Again, Grant Williams, everything he does generally on and off the court is hilarious to me personally. He's an okay player, but again, he just provides a lot of hilarious moments when he talks, so... He did, again, miss both of those free throws, and they ended up losing the game because of that, because they ended up going to overtime and could not close the deal. 
42-year-old, 20-year NBA vet Udonis Haslam announced this week that he will officially retire at the end of the season no matter how it ends. He says, I'm done. I'm done no matter what happens. I gave my contribution. I think at this stage, there needs to be another voice for these guys. It's time for somebody to step up and be the voice. I absolutely agree with that. I appreciate everything UD's always done for the Miami Heat as a Miami Heat fan. An absolute legend down there. Three NBA championships. A Miami, Miami University legend. A Miami Dade County legend. He's definitely going to get his number retired. Um, the only other person with more seasons with one individual team is Dirk Nowitzki with his 21 seasons with the Dallas Mavericks. So shout out to Udonis Haslam. Congratulations on a great career. A lot of people make fun of him for not playing a lot. A lot of people think he's wasting a roster spot. But his veteran leadership and his direction for the team and his mentality and his toughness is something that is definitely worth the 2 or $3 million that he gets paid every year. And it's definitely worth that roster position. He might obviously end up going into coaching. He's definitely going to have some type of ownership or relationship still with the Miami Heat. When I think about Miami Heat, I think about Pat Riley. I think about Dwayne Wade. And honestly, right after that, you'd have to think about Udonis Haslam. He's been a constant face for the franchise, their longest tenured player ever. Um, one of the longest tenure players, obviously, ever in the entire NBA, again, with 20 seasons with one team. Since last week's episode, Job Morant was officially suspended by the NBA and the Memphis Grizzlies for two to four games. It went from two originally, and it was later announced that he'll be at least away for four games. Since those two games that he's missed thus far, they've lost to both the Los Angeles Clippers and the Los Angeles Lakers. There's no timetable currently for his return. He was being investigated by Colorado police earlier this week, and they said they found no illegal wrongdoing, so they won't be charging him with anything for the situation of that he got caught on Instagram Live with a small 380 pistol. A lot of people in sports media have obviously been making comments about this. This has been one of the hottest stories in all of sports and just all of news, period. It's a very sad situation. It's something that hopefully he learns from as one of the young black faces of the league. He has to know better. He has to do better. He has to be able to control his alcohol better. He needs to stay at the hotel and off of social media and in front of cameras when he's on these road trips. It also came out this week that Stephen Adams had recently had a team player I had a players-only team meeting with the Memphis Grizzlies and kind of talked about how their road record was bad, but their home record was pretty good, and how they need to stay honed in and focused on the road so that they can obviously come out with more wins and improve their record and continue to move up in the Western Conference standings. But again, John Morant won't be charged by the Colorado Police. Something to add to this about John Morant as well, the NBA does have a stipulation in their CBA that says if a team play if a player was to bring a weapon on the team plane or any kind of team property, which would include, of course, the arena or the plane, especially when you're transferring it from state to state, or if it was in-state, it really doesn't matter for the NBA CBA, that that is a minimum in instance 50-game violation. So this is still being investigated by the NBA and the Memphis Grizzlies. So it's very interesting to see how this will end up if he ends up getting suspended 50 games. That's entering his 34 to $40 million contract for next year. He has a ton of sponsorships and a ton of deals that are looming and have just freshly been signed when it comes to his Nike deal, the Pirate deal, his new deal that kicks in next year, um, as well, again, is, is his signature shoe with Nike. So that's a pretty big deal. Nike says that they will support him through this process. The Memphis Grizzlies have stood by him through this process, said that they will be here to help him with any help that he personally needs throughout this process to make sure that he's a better person and doesn't get in this kind of trouble again. After the draw, Morant announced and him being away from the team for again at least four games it was later announced as well that brandon clark the power forward has suffered a season-ending left achilles tear so he's going to be out for the season stephen adams had received stem cell injections
reactions in his right knee. It originally was stated that he'd be reevaluated in four weeks, but it came out a few days later that he will also be shut down for the remainder of the regular season. So the injury bug really has affected the Memphis Grizzlies as well as obviously John Morant, their star player, being out for personal issues detrimental to the team, of course. So Memphis has lost those two games. Hopefully they don't continue to slip too much in the standings. Their season really does boil down to whether John Morant comes back, but without Steven Adams as well as Brandon Clark, who are definitely two very pivotal bigs for the Memphis Grizzlies, they're going to need to look at free agency, which is a tough time of the year to be doing that. It's a tough time of the year to find anybody that's going to be substantial or provide quality minutes off the bench or starting. So they don't really have a great chance at this point for an NBA championship. I didn't think they were going to get to the finals this year with or without this jaw situation or these injuries. But this really kind of kills their chances completely at this point of even probably getting out of the first round. Although they still will probably have a pretty high seed as they have played well throughout the regular season, especially at home. Some more unfortunate injury news out of the NBA. Jonathan Isaac, power forward for the Orlando Magic, is also out for the remainder of the season. He will need season-ending surgery on a torn left abductor muscle. He had just came off of back-to-back seasons in which he missed two years straight of basketball. So he had just recently made a return. So that's really, really sad to see. Lonzo Ball is also contemplating a third knee surgery. He hasn't played one game this year with the Chicago Bulls. He again is contemplating a now a third surgery that can make him miss up to six months of basketball. So his next season as well as the remainder of the season aren't really looking the best. Zion Williamson's hamstring tear has also been now reported to be a lot more substantial than it was originally reported and he won't be evaluated for another two to three weeks. He may also miss the remainder of the NBA season. Then lastly, Kevin Durant, before his home debut with the Phoenix Suns, he was doing some warm-up drills, which he slipped and twisted his left ankle. He got up, retied his shoes, and did finish the warm-up. He did, though, notice some swelling when he went to the back before the game. They ruled him out for the game, and it's now been said that it was a pretty substantial grade 2 sprain, so he could be out for up to 4-6 to six weeks, which would definitely be the end of the regular season. They have been playing amazing since he's got to Phoenix. It's really sad to see this injury, especially when he nursed that MCL injury so well and had came back at what looked to be 100%, was playing amazing basketball. Him and Devin Booker were killing it. Again, they hadn't lost the game. Everybody was thriving. It looked like they had played together for years, everyone was saying. So hopefully KD can get back soon as possible and hopefully by the playoffs. And I hope that the Suns don't slip in ratings rankings too much because the West is very, very tight. From 1 to 9 is about 5.5 to 7 games, depending which team we're talking about. So the Suns are definitely in a position where they could fall into the play-in if they lose a few games in a row. So hopefully that does not happen. Devin Booker, though, to mention, did have 44 points that night against the Oklahoma City Thunder which would have been Kevin Durant's home debut and they breeze, breeze past the Thunder quite easily so they did win that game without Kevin Durant which they obviously probably would have done with Kevin Durant as well but unfortunately he did of course injure his ankle right before the game this week in a win against the Washington Wizards Giannis's last rebound was officially rescinded from the NBA after he caught the ball up court bounced it off the backboard and caught it it was officially called a triple double so he finished the game with 23 points 13 assists and at that point 10 rebounds but after being rescinded by the nba was no longer considered a triple double so he finished officially with nine rebounds the nba said essentially if a player isn't intentionally trying to make the shot they just will not count the rebound i find that very funny i don't think it would have been a big of a deal if it wasn't the end of the game and if it wasn't Giannis. but i see the point they're trying to keep the game as fair and logical as possible so he did kind of cheat the system there and he, he admitted after the game yeah he did kind of steal one he wanted a triple double on his belt so i understand the reasoning behind it 
it was pretty lighthearted. It wasn't malicious at all. The Wizards didn't seem to care. They were getting beat regardless if he got the rebound or not. But it was a pretty funny like thing that he did try to bounce it off the backboard and grab the rebound. I didn't actually think it was going to count when it originally was counted a rebound, honestly. So I wasn't aware of that rule. I didn't think you could just do that. And, of course, obviously the NBA seems to agree with me as they rescinded his 10th rebound. So he didn't end up with the triple-double. So he finished the game officially with 23 points. 13 assists and now 9 rebounds after that 10th rebound was rescinded. The Baltimore Ravens placed a non-exclusive franchise tag on their quarterback, Lamar Jackson, this week. This officially allows Lamar Jackson to negotiate and talk to other teams, in which the Ravens will then have a chance to match that. If they do not match that, they will receive two first-round picks. Proof whichever team ends up signing Lamar Jackson to a long-term deal. The non-exclusive also pays less than the exclusive franchise tag. So in perspective, he's only going to be making $32.4 million if he does actually play on this non-exclusive tag, opposed to the $45 million in which an exclusive tag would have paid him. $45 million would have made him the fourth highest paid quarterback by total salary cap hit in 2023. The non-exclusive tag makes him the ninth highest paid quarterback in the NFL for the 2023 season. So if he's unable to come to a deal with another team, he would be essentially forced, unless he was to sit out, to pay to play under this non-exclusive tag and then this whole situation could happen again in the next offseason similar to Kirk Cousins he signed a non-exclusive in 2016 and then he signed an exclusive franchise franchise tag in 2017 so it pretty much forces these players to stay they can do this for I believe as long as they, they want to I think you can do the franchise tag exclusive one for I think two to three years before they just officially are free agents I definitely think this is going to come back to bite the Baltimore Ravens at some point one of the most winning quarterbacks in NFL history through his first four or five seasons. One of the best rushers in the entire league, quarterback or not. Just an overall franchise player. I don't really understand why they're playing with him so much. I don't know if it's the agent thing. I don't know if it's a black quarterback thing. I don't know if they don't trust him. A lot of stupid things are coming out of the Baltimore Ravens this week. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like he's going to be back there, if you ask me. I don't think he's going to play for $13 million less than what he should be given. And honestly, I think he wants more than the $42 million as well. He wants about $100 million this summer, guaranteed money, and then the contract will play out however it plays out. Four ideal landing spots, according to ESPN, for Lamar Jackson would be the Washington Commanders, the Miami Dolphins, the Raiders, and then, of course, the Ravens, if he was able to figure that situation out. It was said that he was going to be part of the coaching hunt for the offensive coordinator at some point. It said that he did have some say in that coaching decision that was made. But obviously since then, they've now offered him and assigned him the non-exclusive franchise tag, which is essentially low-balling him from even what he was asking for in the first place. And that puts a player in a very tough position because there's not really much they can do unless the team is willing to let go of draft picks and essentially pay him the contract that he's wanting. And I do believe he does deserve it. I would love to see him with the Patriots. I don't think that's realistic. I know they're not going to trade Mac Jones or really wanting to pay someone this much money. But there's a lot of teams out there, not a lot, but there's a few teams out there that do have the draft picks and the salary cap to give Lamar this deal that he's wanting. Baltimore Ravens are certainly playing chess with him at this point because there only are a certain teams that do have that cap space without obviously releasing a bunch of players to make said cap space. So they generally know where he could and couldn't go just based on the cap hit and the cap space available, as well as who and who doesn't have the first round picks that would be owed to the Ravens if he does end up signing with said team. Some news out of the music industry this week. 
The Death Row Records musical catalog, previously owned by Suge Knight, now owned by Snoop Dogg, is officially back re-released on all digital streaming platforms. Snoop Dogg said last year that after he required the rights in a publishing deal, he was originally trying to acquire just his masters back, and he was told the amount for the entire Death Row Records catalog. He then acquired that, relinquished all the ownership, and made sure that everybody now owns their intellectual property and the masters of their recordings. So now people are getting paid in the short term as well as the long term as well, which they previously had not been when it was under the ownership of Suge Knight. So shout out to Snoop Dogg for doing the right thing by these artists. Some of these albums include Doggy Style and Doggy Land by Snoop Dogg as well as The Chronic by Dr. Dre. It's kind of crazy to think people like that. Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre didn't have their masters, but he made sure of that with this purchase of this catalog as well as all ownership of Tupac's Lady Rage's Corrupt and also the dog pound shamrock capital acquires metro Boomin's publishing catalog for nearly 70 million dollars that's a really crazy amount that's not something i really anticipated seeing this week um shout out to metro for that it's kind of interesting because the dream sold his catalog for a little over 100 million dollars so it just goes to show you the probably more beneficial and lucrative splits that metro Boomin has with these artists that he does songs with and most of these purchase purchases are just based on the new streaming outlook and how the new streaming formula is going to eventually be given. The music industry is switching over to a higher royalty rate, and with the streaming services and that being more of a long-term play than a short-term gain that physical album sales used to be, a lot of artists are making this decision to make their money up front rather than have to wait for it. So I hope these artists just don't come back to regret this, but $70 million is a lot of money. A lot of people are doing this. Elton John has done it. John Legend's done it. Uh, like I said, The Dream has done it. A lot of big artists. Future has done it recently as well. Um, some of these artists um, are doing over $100 million. Or some of them are the 50s, 60s, 20s, 30s. Again, that's a lot of money up front. You pay your taxes and then you have that fun those funds. So $70 million for someone like Metro Boomin. These funds are definitely going to be used to his benefit with his Boominati record label, as well as some of the film and just content creation that he is into as well outside of the music. But shout out to Metro Boomin on securing the bag with $70 million to to Shamrock Capital. Already being named the most successful rapper to debut in the 2010s, Feature is now the fifth most successful rapper ever on Billboard charts, following only Drake, Eminem, Lil Wayne, Kanye West, and then it is Future. Following him is now Jay-Z, Nicki Minaj, Kendrick Lamar, Little Baby, and J. Cole. This is just a longevity award and just shows you that Future's been putting in a lot of work for a long, long time. Everyone should know how I feel about Future at this point. It's one of my favorite artists of all time. If I had to listen to any artist pretty much forever going forward, it would probably be Future or Drake, and Future probably has the edge in that competition, Jay-Z being a very close third. Future's music is very enjoyable and relatable to me. I've always enjoyed Future's music, so shout out to him. Now the fifth most successful Billboard recording hip-hop artist of all time. SZA's album, S.O.S., officially makes it 10 weeks at number one on the Billboard 200. Another historic moment for SZA, this album is still going crazy. Her tour is wrapping up recently in Atlanta, I believe, was the last tour stop for her. So a really great album, a really good fan base. She has a cult-like following. A lot of people appreciate her music and enjoy her music, obviously. Sold-out tour dates, plenty of accolades and recognition, nominations, and accreditations. So shout-out to SZA on, again, a great album and continued success with her now her 10th week at number one on the Billboard 200 R&B charts. In the news this week is Tiger Woods. He is officially being sued by his ex-girlfriend for $30 million. It's alleged that he kicked her out of their home that they shared for six years. He told her to pack up a suitcase for a solo trip, then dropped her off at the airport and told her she can't come back to the house. He then had the lock switched. So this is pretty funny, in my personal opinion. It was his girlfriend. They really have no rights in this situation either way. 
Um, he seemed to be supporting her life for the most part. I don't know that she had a job or anything of that nature. But she's suing him. She said that he was he had verbally agreed to give her the house for six years after they had ever broken up, if they were ever broke up. I think this is pretty funny. It seems like he's learned his lesson after losing half of his net worth to his wife after his first cheating scandal. Um, never got married or never got back in a serious relationship or a commitment since then. So it's probably a smart idea for him. He has ran his bag all the way back up to being a billionaire. He's not letting go of any more money. He is not giving any more property away. So he literally dropped her off at the airport with her bag and told her she can't come back to the house and change the locks. She states that she provided, quote, valuable service for Woods in exchange for living rent-free. She also claims that the pair had an oral agreement that would have allowed her to stay in the house for five years if they ever split. So she was essentially, I guess, homeless. I don't really know what that situation was post that, but she is officially out. And now he's being sued for $30 million as she feels that she has some rights to the home as well as some of his money. Popular YouTube star Omni and a Hellcat has been sentenced to five and a half years in order to forfeit $30 million in assets, including $6 million in cash, Lamborghinis, Porsches, Bentleys, McLarens, and a portfolio that included more than a dozen properties. He said, I really didn't know the significance of this crime until I was picked up by the FBI at my home. And he says that I feel like I let everybody down. The company was launched in 2016 and was known to various names such as gears tv and gears reloaded it provided its subscribed customers on-demand movies and television shows as well as access to dozens of live cable channels and pay-per-view events at a cut rate price of less than 15 dollars a month in some situations all of the content was allegedly stolen from legitimate services like comcast verizon and direct tv which a portion of that forfeited six million dollars in cash will be going to those companies directly Creed 3, which was directed by and stars Michael B. Jordan, becomes the first sports film in history to surpass $100 million in its opening weekend last weekend. I haven't seen the film quite yet, but I'm definitely very excited to see it. He's a very big fan of anime, and that came into play a lot, he said, in his directing style when it came to specific details, especially in fight scenes, such as him being in the ring, compared to, obviously, anime and how in-depth and very detailed that those fight scenes are in anime. He continues to be a success in a field that is usually dominated by non-African American people. So with him making his directing debuts and he's now executive producing a lot of things, he started his own media company. Michael B. Jordan is going to be around for a long time. They're already in talks for Creed 4 and he wants to have the same co-star as he did for Creed 3. They've done a lot of interviews and media appearances together. They seem to have really great chemistry with each other and plan on doing more films and just content in general in the future. Some news in tech this week. According to the Business Insider, the FDA rejected Neuralink's request for approval to begin testing its brain chips in humans, Reuters reported. The agency cited dozens of issues with the device, including concerns it could overheat or move in the brain. So that's a pretty big deal. Neuralink's a very interesting thing. He tested it a few years ago in a pig, um, which was very interesting. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that on YouTube, but if you haven't, it's definitely something to watch. After seeing the Neuralink and the pig a few years ago on YouTube, that was a very interesting video and a very interesting demonstration on how this Neuralink can eventually work and benefit humans. But I can generally agree with the FDA. I mean, if something can overheat in someone's brain or move, that could cause being paralyzed, that could cause being brain dead, that could cause all kinds of deficiencies immediately. And that's not something that the FDA could ever obviously support directly, especially something being implemented into the brain. That's just not something that's ever happened. 
So sooner or later, this will be approved. They will work out all the kinks in the system, and humans will start to be tested with this Neuralink system. It will be very controversial, but it could also be very helpful to humans in the future, so we'll see how that goes. Elon also announced this week that they will be starting construction on the largest gigafactory yet to be located in Mexico. The plant will be built in the northern border state of Nuevo Leon, and will cost over $5 billion to build. The new factory will increase Tesla's global output and create up to 6,000 jobs in the region with the potential for the battery production to follow. These gigafactories that he speaks about are a key to Tesla's success and he speaks about their output being higher than anywhere else in the world. Just one single gigafactory produces more lithium batteries than anywhere else combined. So that'll be a really big deal. It's a really big deal that it's going to be in Mexico. I know a lot of people are going to be looking at that pretty negatively, probably America as well, because obviously the workers are going to be a lot cheaper if you do it in Mexico versus America or anywhere else in the world. So that creates a lot, a lot of controversy behind that. But anything Elon Musk and Tesla does is going to be controversial. But it's very interesting. The blueprints for the building look very interesting. And the location that he chose is also very interesting and intriguing. We'll see what the future holds. He announces a lot of things that sometimes do happen. Sometimes they don't. So we'll see what comes to fruition with this Gigafactor here in the future. Alright everybody, that's a wrap for episode 8. appreciate you guys for sticking around. As always, please feel free to like, subscribe, comment, and share wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.